This is unstructured. Hey everyone. Really enjoyed doing this interview, but I have to say that while recording, there were some technical difficulties with uh, an extreme echo on the line. This, fortunately, our great engineer Isaiah has managed to strip out, so you won't hear it, but the result of it is on occasion I step on Claire or interrupt her, and for that I apologize. Otherwise, though, I hope you do enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Today's guest, we're going to cross the uh, pond. And we have Claire Harris. Claire is a line producer and investigative journalist with the BBC. In Now, is it Glasgow or Glasgow? Glasgow. How do you? Glasgow. Glasgow. Okay. Okay. I work in Norfolk. And yeah. people come into town and say, oh, I'm here in Norfolk. And it kind of drives everybody crazy, so I wanted to get that right off the jump. So now, what exactly is a line producer, and how does it work at the BBC and in England or well, Scotland? Yeah, well, okay, Scotland um, and England, as you know, are part of Britain. So to avoid all confusion, let's just call it Britain. Um, I work at BBC Scotland, which is a part of the BBC, and line producing really is helping it's a tough one to define actually you know you're helping people get things on air so you know and all of that facet so that would be setting up interviews going to film cutting you know editing finding contributors all sorts of things I mean that really is it's the process line producing is the process of getting something to air um but I would say that's sort of part of my job and the main part of my job is being nosy oh really okay so you kind of do everything. Yeah, I guess. I guess. I mean, obviously, we have craft people as well, you know, like craft editors and, you know, craft film editors and craft cameramen or women. But, you know, when needs be, take out a camera. So are you the one in their ear? No, no, because it, it's not studio production. So it'll be out, so an outside production. So you'd be going to places to do something. So you take your crew with you. And so you're the person directing it and making sure the whole day or the whole morning or whatever it is, goes as it should do. So you get the material you need with the, the shots that you need to go back and put something together. Okay. Okay. So then you do reconnaissance essentially ahead of time, prepare the location for the shoot, um, make sure that uh, I guess everything that is necessary is on hand. You make it sound much more glamorous. You know, when we're talking about going to do a shoot, it might, well, what was I doing recently? I was doing something about secondhand tires recently. So there's, it, it's legal in this country to resell tires once they've come off a car. Now, why you'd want to do that, mm-hmm. it, why you'd want to buy that is completely beyond me because someone's taken them off their car for a reason. But I, So the filming and the, the producing in that was to find the tires, um, find the people selling the tires, essentially find the bad guys and work with the the police and other organizations and we went on a raid so um because the raid was top secret because of prosecution they're going to prosecute there was no way i could do a recon or anything Mm. like Mm. that i just you know turned up and kept out the way and made sure everyone was safe you know that was part that was really my job on the day okay that's interesting so that's a little like um here in america we have 60 minutes and 2020 and they do some of that undercover type of stuff not to mention the local news channels seem to do a whole lot of the let's get a quotation on this car with a transmission in five different auto repair shops and see what kind of offers they give. 
Yeah, so mostly what I do is is more akin to your 60 minutes type thing or uh, front, you had Frontline. PBS does Frontline, doesn't it? Uh, yes, Frontline still still is. Yeah. Uh, so that, that would be more the sort of thing that I would do on an everyday basis, making that sort of program. Okay, and is that because BBC is uh, state-run like PBS is uh, public? Well, the, the, the BBC has a, has a responsibility to reflect the news and reflect the society as it is. So part of that is investigating what's happening in our culture and in our society and reflecting that and putting it on television so other people can learn from it or expose it or whatever it might be. Okay, does that give you some degree of freedom, though, as well? Because here the news is being very driven by profit and clicks, and if they don't get the viewers, they don't get advertisers, then they die, and that can kind of shape the news in many ways that are not always great. For example, it could be that a major corporate sponsor is the one who's being investigated. Do they put the full effort in that case because they may lose advertising dollars? Or maybe it's just not very salacious. It's much more interesting to talk about a porn star and a president, and that takes up all the oxygen in the room. But a legitimate news story that maybe will affect people, like, um, let's say, a a airplane where they're cutting corners in development. Sometimes those just don't really hit the front page as well. Well, that couldn't happen here because of the law. The law is different for public broad well for broadcasters. So that's any any person or or any corporation or company that does television or radio. Um, there are strict laws about impartiality. So you must represent both sides. Um, uh, but. Uh, it's different with our newspapers. Our newspapers can do what your broadcasters do. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, I believe there's famous tabloid scene in the UK. Yes. That make some of ours actually look tame. Well, yes. <laughs> I, I was thinking. I always think of it as opposite. So your television and your uh, your newspapers are exact opposites to our television and our newspapers in terms of the sorts of things, the sorts of stories that they run. That's kind of wild. I mean, we do have tabloids as well, but they're really relegated to the supermarket end cap, and nobody takes them seriously, or claim they don't. (laughs) (laughs) They, you know, they read them for the pictures. Oh, well, yes, yeah. (laughs) The the newspapers, they have to sell papers. You know, they have have advertising that they have to have. So that's partially, Mm -hmm. I guess that's exactly why um, you have pictures of naked ladies on page three of our newspapers. Well, one newspaper. Yeah, we don't go that far yet because we're... U.S. is a little bit puritanical in that. Um, we tend to be very upset about any kind of nudity or sex, but violence is cool. So we can have a lot of blood, a lot of violence, that's no problem. But if there's a half-naked lady on a page, there, there will be problems. Uh, I, I think we're a bit bipolar in this. You know, our, our British mentality is a bit bipolar because obviously you know, anything to do with sex is obviously salacious and interesting. Uh, you want to read about which celebrity is um, is doing things that they shouldn't be doing with people they shouldn't be doing it with. Um, and, you know, if you get to see a picture of that, then that's great. Um, but on the other hand, um, we like to turn our noses up at, us, up at it as well. What's funny, I, I, love, I love discovering the differences between the two. And another thing I'm very interested in is, well, okay, I'm an American, so that means it's all about me. So what do you guys think about the United States right now? Uh, I think you're you're really uh, divided. Uh, it seems to me, and 
there's a lot of Trump news. Um, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. That's why, you know, it's, it keeps us entertained. It keeps everyone entertained. So we're not really getting the full picture, as I'm sure. I think you probably have to work hard to get the full picture anywhere. But it, it seems like you've got this, this uh, president who's uh, quite contentious and seems to be doing an awful lot to destroy Obama's legacy. Um, by reneging on lots of agreements that, that took years to construct, et cetera, et cetera. But then you also have this this idea that I, I think is a bit of a fallacy that he's won against North Korea. I mean, certainly North Korea has let some American prisoners go back, which is good. That's good progress. But um, was it really because of Trump? There's something else working? I don't know. So it seems like on one hand, you've got this tabloid president and his supporters, like Kanye West seems to have gone mental. And then you've got the, in quotes, other side, which just seems to be sort of holding their heads in their hands, perhaps. Hmm. And you have some insight on this because you lived in um, Tokyo for some years. And I, that's obviously not Korea, but I know that Japan is always very concerned about North Korea being hmm. close and being very dangerous. And there's been a lot of um, saber rattling from North Korea directly at Japan, if I recall. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So I was in uh, in Japan when um, actually, I can't remember her name. It, one of the because you, you probably have heard that uh, North, North Korea made a habit of abducting Japanese citizens and just shipping them, basically abducting them and shipping them over to North Korea, hiding them, then denying all knowledge for decades, um, and then they started releasing them back in the early two thousands, and. Uh, one of them was married to an American defector. Yeah, so it was at that point that she came back to Japan um, with her American husband. And so there was then, because he was a defector, they wanted, the United States wanted him back. Um, so there was this whole big brewery about whether they were going to keep him in Japan and grant him citizenship or whether he was going to be forced to return and face court martial. But he stayed in the end. I think the, the overall feeling was these people have been through enough. <laughs> we don't need to give them that as well. They had children. They'd been married for a long time and they had children. And I remember reading one story about how they each worked hard not to forget their cultures by saying goodnight in their respective languages each night. That's awesome. There's been some really beautiful things coming out of North Korea, like the actors who escaped over a lot of years. I've heard something about that recently. Um, I think This American Life did some coverage of it. Um, what brought you to Tokyo? <laughs> uh, right. Okay. <clears throat> so I did. Um, I, I, I did a, a bachelor's degree, which is a, a three-year sort of uh, standard university degree, and I did that in performance. And when I'd finished that, I was like, "Oh, it's quite good. I'd like to spend another year studying, please." And I did a master's degree after that. That was just a year, um, <clears throat> and that was in uh, world theatre. And from then, I uh, developed an interest in in a couple of types of Japanese theatre. So one is no, it's spelled N-O-H. Mm. That's a traditional court theatre. So it's not your kabuki. It's not the, the big hair and the big things. It's very plain masks um, and very understated. Um, and I also got very interested in another form called buto, which is a sort of post-nuclear holocaust uh, dance form. And it's very earthy and very un-Japanese uh, in terms of, you, you think of the stereotype as a Japanese is very reserved, etc. It's very um, 
very different to that. So um, I did these degrees and then couldn't get a job quite naturally because I was a bit specialist <laughs> at that point. Uh, and then, you know, I was just applying for jobs. I saw an, a, an advert in the Guardian newspaper to go and teach in Japan. I applied, <clears throat> went down to an interview in London, got the job. And I, I think about three months later, I was living in Tokyo, teaching English. That's how I started. And I thought, oh, I'll do this for a year. It'll be great. And I'll go back and I'll do something else. It'll be fine. But I had a three-year visa, so when my one year was up, I thought, well, I'll just stay on a bit longer. And I got a different job, and that was that was great. You know, so then my three-year visa was up, and I thought, well, I'll just renew it. I'll, you know, I'll just go and renew it, thinking they'll give me a one-year visa. No, they gave me another three-year visa. So I uh, stayed in Japan for six years. And eventually I was doing some really interesting things. I was working with an English through drama sort of teaching company, and they were had they had a contract to teach English teachers how to teach English, essentially, because the, it was the, when the homeroom teachers were going to have to teach their students a little bit of English. That was just coming in at the time. So I did some really interesting workshops and things with, with them. And then uh, I came back. I went um, back to London. I'm not from London. I'm from the, the Midlands. So if you think about the centre of England... And the, the two bits that stick out, one of which is Norfolk and the other is Wales, sort of in the centre. Um, that's the bit I'm from. But I, I came back and I got a job working for the Ministry of Internal Affairs, which is very grandiose. But they have an office in London, which is basically where they represent themselves to the UK. I worked in there for a bit. Okay, that's interesting. So a um, couple of things. Do you speak Japanese? I do now, yes. I didn't oh. when I went, but I learnt. So whilst I was, I had a very good teacher whilst I was uh, in Japan. and. Um, then I wanted to do something I want because you can go through the, 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 the Japanese government's own language proficiency test, um, which I was doing it, but I wanted something that would be transferable internationally. So I did another master's degree because that's what you need. You need two master's degrees. So I did wow. one in Japanese, well, advanced Japanese it was. So, that's, uh, so I have two master's degrees. One is advanced Japanese, one is theater. And uh, yeah, so wow. that's high. Interesting pass. Yeah. Pretty brave, though, too. Um, didn't you feel kind of isolated, especially living somewhere, not speaking the language, not fit, fitting in completely? That that would be a little nerve-wracking to me. I was young, you know, I was early 20s, and I was living, at the, my first job, we all lived together. So we had an apartment block, and there was all of the people who were employed okay. at the, the company lived in that apartment block. So the people I was seeing spoke English. So either they were expats okay. like me, or they were Japanese that spoke English. And Okay, okay. So you had a bridge of a sort. Yeah, but it took me two years to make a Japanese friend who wasn't, you know, a colleague. Okay, well, that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Now, okay, so we're going to get back to London, and you're in the, can you explain that again, the interior? <laughs> ministry of Internal Affairs. It's a, it's a Japanese government ministry, but what they okay. do is, uh, Japan is separated into prefectures. So as you have states and we have counties, Japan has prefectures. And uh, each prefecture has, it, it's, it's essentially a council. So they have the council workers and they uh, would send them on attachment to London. Or there's, there's one in the US actually. Um, and what they do is they try and make links between Japan and the UK or Europe as it was because that was the European hub. So it's not a consulate per se. It's no. uh, uh, just a, a public affairs or PR agency, almost. Essentially, yeah. Okay, just government run. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean they they conduct their own research, so they have specialist researchers who will do things as to how councils collect rubbish or how councils recycle, or you know. So they look at because of course in the UK each council does it differently. 
Um, so they try and collect best practice. And so there's some degree of information sharing and learning. Very cool. Now, how many degrees is this at this point? Is that three, one bachelor, two masters that you had? Yeah. I see. And then I think you said that that wasn't enough education. You had to retrain as a broadcast journalist. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so time for another degree. <laughs> well, I didn't do it. It's a, it's a, it's a postgraduate diploma. I didn't do the whole master's because I thought who needs to write another dissertation? Oh. You know, I've spent enough of my time writing dissertations. I didn't need another one. Um, and frankly, I didn't need another master's degree. I mean, what's the point? But what I wanted to do was I wanted to really consolidate what I was interested in and try and move away from being stuck in the Japanese sort of, because you, you come back from Japan, you speak Japanese, people think that you're, they want to use that skill. And that's, that's, that's great. You know, I should use that skill, but it's not the only thing I'm good at and the only thing I can do. Mm-hmm. So I was working in, in local radio at the time. And I thought, well, this broadcasting, like that's, quite fun oh journalism gosh okay that's just finding things out so what if I mix the two together and that's how I came to broadcast journalism but then you went into the uh, investigative route uh, that was good fortune uh, uh, I say that was yeah well, well I don't know everything everything has a, a touch of good fortune doesn't it um, sure yeah so what I was when I was finishing off my diploma uh, I won a placement at um, BBC radio in, in Salford, and that was uh, their flagship investigative program mm, called File okay. on Four. <clears throat> it's very good. They tend to do heavier subjects, so, so policy topics and things like that. Um, and I worked there um, just for a month, but they called me back and said, could I do some more work for them as a freelance? And I said, oh, yes, absolutely. But they're in Manchester, and at that point I'd move up to Glasgow, which is about five hours difference if you drive it, a couple of hundred miles. Are you originally from Glasgow? Or no, no. Where are you originally from? I never got that. Leicestershire. Okay, but that's east of? East of Birmingham. Okay, which is so east of London. North of London. No. Oh, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> think London. I, I'm terrible. I, I, I'm an American. I don't know these things. <laughs> um, well, you're forgiven. Uh, think London, look north about 100 miles. And that's about where I am originally from. Okay. I was going to ask you what what is uh, popular in the Glasgow area and what do you guys do for fun? Glasgow is Glasgow is a bit different. So, you know, <laughs> the capital of Scotland is Edinburgh. So Edinburgh is on the east coast and Glasgow is on the west coast. Edinburgh is very refined. And, and I really hate to say it because I apologize to anyone who's listening who uh, may be offended, but uh, Edinburgh really is a lot like England. And if you're Scottish, you're going to hate that I just said that. <laughs> but, well, then that helps you fit in, right? Yeah, but I'm on the West Coast. I'm in Glasgow. Mm. So Glasgow is, a, is traditionally where the shipbuilding was. It was where the heavy industry was that re- really doesn't exist anymore. But you have that um, population of people. And so Glasgow is a much edgier city uh, than Edinburgh. If you think Edinburgh refined, Glasgow is raw. But that uh, gives us a lot of some great artists and great musicians that come from Glasgow, like Franz Ferdinand, for example, Paolo Nettini, Biffy Clyro. I, I see you're pulling faces, but they're all pretty famous over here. <laughs> no, I, I could name bands here you probably haven't heard of too. Yeah, so. exactly. But that's cool. I mean, where are Simple Minds from? Where are Simple Minds from? I know they're Scottish. I didn't know. Yeah, the... but where are they from? I'm going to have to Google it now. Is that true? <laughs> That that was my deep Scottish knowledge right there. 
Into mines. But what do what do we do for fun in Glasgow? Well, Glasgow is really great because it's surrounded by mountains. So on one side you've got sort of mountains to the north and the east, mm. and then to the west you've got the coast with all the islands, and it's lovely. Um, and then to the south you've got um, the forests. So it's it's really nice actually. It's all so a lot of hiking. Of, yeah, a lot of outdoor activities. Yeah, a lot of drinking, but we won't go there. Oh, why? <laughs> That's yeah, a fun you part. know, just because I've grown out of it now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a runner. I would probably enjoy a lot of that country. Oh yeah, I'm sure you would. Yeah. And the drinking. Oh yeah, yeah look, simple minds are from Glasgow, according to Wikipedia. There we are. There you go. They're locals. Yeah, they are <laughs> apparently. Well, cool. Now, getting back to the business, when you are getting stories, are these um, cultivated or are they assigned to you from the top? Mostly cultivated. Very occasionally you'd have things uh, assigned and that would be because it would be a reactive piece. So five years ago, maybe there was a helicopter accident. Um, It was a police helicopter that had a catastrophic failure in its rotor blades and happened to fall on top of a pub in the middle of Glasgow, literally in the centre of Glasgow. So, yeah. The the story on high was, yes, to investigate that. And, yeah, that happened on a Friday night, and we put something out on Sunday night. So that was a a huge team effort to get that done. So you have some serious range. It could be um, a local proprietor scamming customers all the way to a, a horrendous accident where death, things like that, are involved. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've, we've had some great successes um, with things like puppy farming and exposing uh, illegal dog trades. Um, oh, yeah. Oh. Nasty. How, oh, that, that leads us down another path. How do you deal with that? Do you compartmentalize? I think you have to. I have to say that wasn't the worst one that I've done. The worst one was uh, it was in about formation of babies um that was horrible really horrible because uh it was the the story was and it it arose from a news story but um i did a lot of further investigation so the news story was it had been discovered that a crematorium in edinburgh had been refusing to return the ashes of of babies and then scattering them in their own gardens um and people had found this out and they were absolutely horrified but it was a local edinburgh news story Mm. until we took it on and discovered this was widespread and widespread not only in Scotland but in England and Wales and Ireland and the, the reason well, they, we have they something had a else reason. in common what's that we had a crematorium here where his oven broke down oh. and he was stacking bodies into walls and everywhere for years and handing people concrete back as remains oh, wow and that was in one of our states. I, I I don't remember exactly, so I don't want to pick on any state. Are they privately run your crematorium, crematoria? Hmm? Are they privately run, or they are they? Oh yes, yes regulated. Yes. I think there probably are laws, but you're an investigative journalist. How effective are actual food inspectors, for example? It if they come in once a year, I can run the restaurant into a ground into the ground before they get back. And have plenty of nastiness and everything else. Absolutely. I personally, there is, I have a bent that I don't really trust that much in the government agencies. I'm more likely to listen to a Yelp review and people and what 
what do you feel and what do you see? Because you're there every day. Are the employees quitting all the time? Is mm-hmm. it a weird environment? Because the city can't get keep track. Uh, no, but then you have uh, you have some sort of well. First of all, does the city not have a responsibility to keep track of you know of this sort of thing? You know, if we're talking about food hygiene, for example, um, isn't there responsibility? Is a public health or public safety responsibility? And if if there is that responsibility, then you have someone to blame, and that's really important. <laughs> you have someone to point the finger at and say you should be doing your job better. You know, it's funny because I I see what you're saying, and that's easy, but I really I want to blame, blame the proprietor. I don't want to blame the city for not investigating enough. I want to blame the guy who's actually doing something wrong. And we have laws for that. And mm-hmm. we can hold him accountable. We don't necessarily have to prop up another agency or a bureaucracy to go around and get paid off on the side or have interference. I don't know. Uh yeah, there has to be personal accountability, obviously. Right. Um, but there also has to, I also feel there should be a, a, a duty of care for your citizens. It's funny, though, because the government, depending on where you are, I don't really feel the government is there specifically for the people. The government's there for themselves. How do you grow in a bureaucracy? The only way to grow it is to levy more restrictions or things like that so that way you can expand the people under you and then you can rise up another level but do you need to i mean do you what is the responsibility of a, of a of a government of local government isn't it to to make sure everything is running smoothly you don't need to you know you're, you're not you're not or they they are not ceos of a corporation i don't know i think there that there's a, a healthy balance I, I i agree and um it gets into incentives and where people are. I just, I don't trust the government to solve my problems. And it depends also where you are too, because in America we have a lot more open spaces, mm-hmm. um, a lot of rural communities. And as a, an example, if there's something going wrong or there's an emergency and somebody's on a farm and they're 20 miles from town, how quickly can the police actually respond? Well, you know, we have some pretty rural places here too, but you know, sure, there are helicopters. There are ways of doing that and ways of getting there. Uh, so we, I don't want to de- degenerate into this this gun control stuff because we're just not going to. Oh no, 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 it. no! I didn't say <laughs> one word about or guns. the right to protect your own property. I don't want to go there at all. No, no, no! I, I, let's just say a medical emergency. Yeah, send a helicopter. That's what we would do here, and they're charity funded. They're they're funded right. by subscription. They're Which not is funded. good. Yeah. Yeah, they do some great work. As is the Coast Guard here. The Coast Guard is not a are not a, a government service. Well, and, and that's fantastic. We have a lot of volunteer firefighters here. Yeah, as an example. Yeah, and I imagine in rural communities, especially, right, mm-hmm. because they need to take care of themselves. Yes. So that's that's where I'm going. I was not trying to backdoor in the gun control. I'm not touching that. But um. Any kind of support, things like that. It, it It's different for different areas. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the more population there is and the more um, people are around you and tighter it is, the more government control that may be required, like noise ordinances and speeding. Th- you know, Things like that can really affect you because you're all clustered together. The more rural and spread out, well, the more independent people generally are. Mm-hmm. 
So there's no perfect solution. No, 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 there isn't. No, no. Uh, our democracy is a work in progress as well. Which is good because if you lock in <laughs> on one thing, once everybody decides on something, then it's probably going to go awry. There are some very incompetent councils and councillors and government officials and all of that. There's, you know, this is, it's, it's universal. Absolutely true. I almost, uh, somebody mentioned that it would be interesting to have a lottery to elect people. Well, yes. Uh, yeah, but you know, if you, if you have, yes. I mean, in some respects, there's a lottery to become a juror in this country. Yes. Um, but that doesn't mean you're going to perform to the best of your ability if you're called up. That's true. And I would obviously want to add rules in like, first, you want to qualify the people who could potentially be politicians and especially find the ones who don't want to be. <laughs> <laughs> do you know the Do you know the work of Douglas Adams? Oh, yes, yes. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and all that. Uh, he was he, one of his famous quotations. I haven't read it. Yeah, well, you don't need to. But he was a very funny man. And one of his, very insightful, actually. One of his quotations mm-hmm. is that anyone who wants to be in government definitely should not be in government. You know, it's, it's automatically right. discounts yourself. If you, if you want to be, then you shouldn't be. There's a lot to that because, and, and you could say that about different fields. If somebody's really wanting to get in and you, you want to look why. And as, again, in your field, I'm sure that you find people in positions of power abusing this power, mm-hmm. whether it's a troop leader um, dealing with kids or other things like that. They tend to be very high on the list trying to get into that position. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that there are tripwires that could be put in place. Uh, I think it's very hard when you've got someone who's a, an inveterate liar, someone who wants to protect, protect that side of themselves, um, does very well at hiding it. Um, it's very difficult to therefore find those people unless the victims are willing and able to speak out and be believed. Have you um, run into that? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. We just did something recently about uh, abuse of football coaches, abuse by football coaches of children in their care. Mm. Yeah, we have that here. Yes. I I think, again, that's something that's universal. And that's what I I mean by, you know, a a good liar is a good liar. And you have to work extremely hard to get them out. Yeah. And that's obviously a depressing topic, but. It's also a real concern. Uh, do you have you found any consistent themes or tells that? No, really, really no. no. So I think uh, Robert. I think Robert Hare had the uh, psychopath test, for example, and things like that. I know John Ronson kind of did a send up of that. Um, he's one of yours, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we you know Channel Four, uh, which is another partially state-funded broadcaster. They did a whole season about psychopaths and they put this online psychopath test. So I've done the psychopath test. Mm. I come quite happy. You know, I, I'm more than 20% psychopath. So what does that really say? I think a lot of people are. There was actually a fascinating um, study. There's a doctor who was studying uh, brain scans of people. Yeah, I, I saw that. And, yeah. and he, he mistook his own. I think they MRIs. Yeah. <laughs> no, his... His was misfiled. He took his own and others to, um, I, I don't know what you call it, um, not evaluate, but have like normal people mixed in there. And mm-hmm. he was like, oh, this one's in the wrong pile. <laughs> it's a psychopath. And it in fact was him. And yeah. he is one. And when he in, asked his family members and everything, he, he really was a psychopath. Not all psychopaths are violent. and well, not absolutely. all. And there are professions actually where they're very desirable. 
Absolutely. Anyone who works in emergency service, I guess, you know, should have a... It's, it's about control, I think, isn't it? Being able to control yourself in highly emotive situations. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes down to lack, lack of empathy, perhaps that perhaps psychopaths may feel. Which can be very useful. Uh, I wouldn't mind my surgeon if you know, I'm being operated on having a lack of empathy and just being dead focused on a job. Or Yeah, completely. If you've got to cut, my, cut off my leg, just cut it off. I don't want to you know, be focused mm-hmm. on that and not how it might feel for me afterwards. Yep. I don't want to go, ooh. Or, and if they have bad table manners or, sorry, bad bedside manners, that's fine too. <laughs> um, they don't have to talk to me. I have a primary care guy. It's a fascinating field. Now, what do you have um, coming up now? Um, well, um, at work, I'm doing something about a, a diver, um, a man who was uh, diving off the very north coast of Scotland who died in somewhat mysterious circumstances. So I'm trying to mm. do some investigating around that. That sounds uh, fascinating. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's early days and I'm working with his widow, but it's been a bit of an uphill struggle so far. It happened five years ago and she's still not got to the bottom of it. How do you and, go um, about that? Oh, of an investigation, that, that would be a great thing to explore, like. You determine that you want to look into this. What would be your first step? Uh, well, my first step is to call the widow and to to have a, a really good conversation to find out if I think she's credible. Um, mm. And that's really important because you get people who phone up and make claims and then you, you, you listen to them and you go, yeah, I understand this is tough for you, but this is not, I can't do anything with this because, you know, you're, you're complaining about your neighbors or you're complaining about some sort of what you think is a big conspiracy um, mm-hmm. but actually how would I even go about trying to demonstrate what you're talking about? It's not possible. And I don't believe it. And you don't sound credible. So I don't believe you. How so do you determine credibility? You, you really have to, I think that's where experience with people is really important. You've got to listen to what evidence they say they have, what evidence they're willing to share with you. So that would have to be written evidence from public authorities or whatever it might be. Do you look for discrepancies in what they say? Like, like maybe you get pieces of knowledge that you can prove or know, and then deliberately ask questions that may be contrary or whatever to see if they, I wouldn't trip anyone up like that. I wouldn't try to do that um, because uh, I don't really think that's helpful. I mean, I'd, I'd probably only go down that route if they, if I really thought they were being silly with me, but yeah, if I've got some outside knowledge, yeah, certainly I'd test it against what they're saying. Okay. Um, and ask a question about it. And also you have to think about the outcome. So the outcome isn't an investigation. The outcome is a program. So you mm. have to, and that might be a radio, radio program. It's more likely to be a television program. So you have to also look at how this person is coming across. Because if you take something where their story is central, they are going to have to be a part of it. I see. And they can't, or ideally aren't boring. Boring's not a problem because you can edit around that. It's not, it's not really that. It's, it's about whether the, the person you're speaking with will create empathy with the audience. Okay. Um, and because um, it's very important in a television program to want to know more, you have to have a victim and you have to have a bad guy, basically, mm-hmm. in very simplistic terms. And if, you're, if you have no sympathy... So you do empathy, need a narrative, though. Oh, absolutely. It's all about telling a story. It's all about telling the story and how that works in. But you have to have the right people to tell the story. There's only so much you can do with music and clever editing and reconstruction. Sure, sure. sure. That makes makes perfect sense. It, it's not that dissimilar to a, a criminal case, is it? Because everybody involved in a criminal case is telling a tale. 
they're presenting the evidence as they want it to be seen. So what you are presenting is a story, literally, not even necessarily the whole story. It would be the story as fairly as we could represent it because, of course, of our impartiality laws. So that's important to remember. So we're never going to deliberately mislead anyone and tell them this will happen when it won't, when we know it won't. We may well interview people we don't use, but that Mm -hmm. might be because we have to take a different turn and go down that route rather than going straight on as we originally planned in in terms of storytelling. Right. The impartiality laws, that's really interesting. I think it's a good tool, but do they really look deep into intent? And the reason I ask is back in the day when I wanted to be a journalist, I was taught methodology to reflect a story I wanted to show while being completely impartial. And one good method was I would take a person on a side that I agreed with or I thought was better. Sometimes it was even subconscious or unconscious. And I would present that side. And then I would find someone with a counter argument that let's just say was not quite as presentable or might seem a little silly or ridiculous. So while I presented both sides, I was shaping a narrative. Does that ever occur? I can't say that it doesn't occur, but I can say that uh, it wouldn't occur in a production that I was doing because that's not the point. The point is to, to mm-hmm. represent the truth as you, as you find it and to shape the story, to work okay. around that get to the other side and there's there's no advantage of making a person look silly for example making an interviewee look silly for the benefit of your story right because the the viewer will understand that immediately how how do you um patrol yourself though i I mean like i said it's not always a a conscious thing even sometimes you believe really strongly in a, a particular thing yeah unconscious bias is a problem um so being aware of it is the first step to overcoming it but uh, you're never the only person producing the work you're always working in cooperation with everybody else so that would be your reporter your producer your editor and your film editor i mean they'd be the people watching the film on a on a you know a regular basis every couple of days to look at how things are going on and quite often because of the sorts of stories that we tell it has to be passed through a, a lawyer as well so all okay, of that good. And comes through. Awesome, awesome. So, and do you uh, do you personally play devil's advocate with yourself? Uh, more likely, someone's going to do that for you because they've got opinions about <laughs> how how someone else how how they want something to be told, or which bit they want to put in instead of that bit that you've chosen to put in, and then you have to discuss between you why the the merits of each bit and and what actually is going to help the outcome. But that's kind of cool, right? A battle of ideas, and then whatever survives, hopefully, will be the strongest. Hopefully. <laughs> Your expression says not always, though. <laughs> personality is very important, isn't it? So if you've got a strong personality and a, a not so strong personality, you know, someone has to acquiesce somewhat. You have to choose your battle sometimes with everything in life. Sure. That makes sense. So what would be the next step? You um, started off, you're on a story. In this particular case, it's interviewing the widow. Mm-hmm. Where do you go from there? So I, I at, that, at this point, before I've um, done too much work, I've done a, a Google search. Google is an amazing tool, um, and you can do very successful searches. 
um, and I, I googled this guy. I pulled up all the newspaper articles I could find about him over the years. There was an official report that I, I managed to find and have a look at. So I've done my research. I've done my, I've done some reading around, and then from there, I go. Well, what questions have I got? So in this case, I want to know about. I want to know more about the postmortem. Now the widow has the postmortem's report, so I go back to the widow. Okay, and uh, um, do you have a, a coroner's report or some, or some sort of inquest that took uh, the death? Well, you see, Scotland and England are different in how they function. Because this man died in Scotland, there isn't automatically a coroner's court, a coroner's inquest. If he died in England, there would have been. However, this particular man is English, or he was English, and lived in England. So the widow managed to get the coroner to investigate and hold an inquest near her town, um, the outcome of which was accidental death. So, uh, you know, we're no further forward at that point. Okay, okay. So it, it would be similar to somebody here hiring a pathologist to do an autopsy on their own? Uh, yes, I guess. That's one way of looking at it, yes. Yeah. Um, the other difference between... Um, well, the one thing that's very peculiar to Scotland is how the police functions with the Crown Office. So we have something called a procurator fiscal, which is an investigating, an investigating branch, I guess, but they instruct the police. So the, the PF, for short, um, tells the police when to investigate and when not to investigate. So it's not the other way around. And if that comes, if the police investigate and they want to put it to trial, that again has to go back through the PF, who will then decide whether to take it to trial or not. And the PF is also responsible for holding fatal accident inquiry, which would be the equivalent of a coroner's inquest. But then they're not standard and they only happen in cases of unexpected death. So, you know, here's my dilemma. This is an unexpected death that happened in Scotland, but I contact the PF and the PF says, we don't see any need to investigate or to hold a mm. fatal accident inquiry. So that's, now, not, that's not dissimilar to here. Um, a prosecuting attorney or a DA or whatever can decide that, no, nothing happened. Mm. But we don't want to, uh, we don't wish to press charges. Mm-hmm. Or they can even say, yes, yeah, something happened, but we just don't have the evidence. So too bad. Yep. Yep. That can happen as well. Yeah. But I, I think it's what, what makes it slightly difficult is that they would also instruct the investigation. We think there's a problem here. Go and find out more. And that's what they would say to the police. Okay, so they literally turn the police on and off like a switch. The police don't investigate independently. They do. They would investigate to a point Mm -hmm. and then withdraw, pending a decision. I see. I see. And, of course, as time goes on, evidence gets lost, things get cold, and Mm -hmm. it becomes more difficult. Now, what is the goal of your story when it comes out? Is it to just present an interesting drama to people, or is it to spur public servants into action? Uh, at the moment, um, the, the widow says she wants to know the truth, and that would be the truth as to why her husband died, and no one has done anything about it in terms of investigating what happened. And for me, I want to know why this seems to have slipped through all the cracks. You know, because if this happens to one case, how many others has this happened to? It seems okay. to just have gone, you know, right down through all the little holes between Scotland and England and their different uh, legal systems. 
and different government mm-hmm. bodies having different responsibilities. No one seems to have taken ownership of it. I see. So you're investigating the system and the process. Um, the widow really wants to know what in the world happened, but mm-hmm. your goals aren't necessarily the same because you can determine what happened and why the investigation didn't occur and you are actually completing your task, but the widow st- still doesn't necessarily know anything. Yeah, I'm not going to. Yeah, that's true. But I would hope that during the course of my investigation, I get as far down to the to truth as I possibly could. You know, so her goals are met and my goals are met. Sure. I understand. It's just hard because you don't have the evidence and they stopped investigating. Unless you are an investigator yourself, which you are, I don't know if sometimes the goal is to just get the police to say, oh, yes, we are looking into it. And then hopefully the goal gets accomplished. Yeah. I would say that one of the things I would hope the widow would do is to put pressure on the, the PF to hold a fatal accident inquiry. And perhaps during the course of my own investigation and the program, that will also help that goal. You know, because having a fatal accident inquiry means there's a proper investigation into her husband's death. And I hope so, too. That would be fantastic. Now, I believe you said you're working on another project or a potential podcast coming up. Do you want to talk about that or plug it a little? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, please. Uh, So this is um, not my investigation. It was an investigation done by Ben Randall because two of his friends from Vietnam disappeared they literally just disappeared and no one knew where they went and one of the girl's mothers thought she was dead for two years and it turned out that both of them had been trafficked into china and sold as brides Mm. in china so ben this is called sisters for sale and you can find it at sistersforsale.com and also the human earth project It's, it's been around on social media quite a lot so if you're a fan of reddit and imager you will have seen it around. But this is how I came to it. I came to it through Imager. I read a post by Ben about 18 months ago where he put uh, an unfinished cut of his documentary online uh, and I watched it and I thought it was fantastic. Um, and I already knew that Ben was going to find his friends or, or, or you know, he, he did find his friends. So I was then thinking, well, what is the story if the goal of the documentary is not to show him whether he finds his friends or not? Um, And that led me to contact him and said, I want to know more about it. Um, Podcasting is really great. I listen to loads of podcasts. Is Mm -hmm. there the possibility, have you thought about doing podcasts? Um, Because that will enable you to get more information than you can have in 90 minutes in a documentary film. True. So he said, great idea. Let's work on it together. So that's what we've been doing. Mm -hmm. So Sisters for Sale is a podcast that will be released. I don't want to say, I don't want to give a time because (laughs) uh, it's a (laughs) Literally, it's huge. Um, when Ben started sending me transcripts, he, he has some 50 hours worth of footage. Um, awesome. So that's an, a, a lot of transcripts that I had to read through. And obviously, I had to learn a lot um, very quickly mm-hmm. in, terms of, in terms of Vietnam and China and the particular com- the cultures that we're talking about because they're, they're unique. So we're working on it. And uh, more information can be found at sistersforsale.com. So hopefully that will be coming. Well, I'm definitely before the end of the year, I'm saying confidently. But there should be 20 or 21 episodes. Okay, fantastic. And I will definitely share it out when you let me know when it's happening. Thank you. And people can visit the website right now and still get plenty of content and learn what's going on and whet their appetite. Completely. There, there's more than 200 blogs on that site. So there's plenty of stuff for people to get reading. Um, and uh, there's, there's a lot of information 
a lot of information. Uh, really interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Maybe we'll have to have you back or revisit things when you actually have the production, or maybe I can get with your partner in that later. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. So, but thanks again. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Eric. Hey everyone, Eric here. I want to thank you again so much for listening. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you taking some. If you like what you hear, please spread the word. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Unstructured P, as in podcast. Also, you can review the podcast in whichever app you use. It really helps a bunch to spread the word. Thanks again. Mm -hmm.